Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Cool. Really good uh, to be with you this morning. Uh, Last week, we were in the book of Ruth. Um, just sort of taking, wanting to take in this little time period uh, before the summer hits and just take some snapshots of some Old Testament stories. Uh, We don't often spend a lot of time uh, in the Old Testament, so we thought it'd be good to just dig in. Uh, We're in, beginning in chapter two here now in the story, what's happened so far is that uh, Ruth is, of course, a a Moabitess woman. She's not an Israelite. She's come into the family. She's sort of come into the clan. What has happened is that her mother, Naomi, uh, her, rather, her mother-in-law and Naomi's husband, uh, Abimelech, and their whole family in a time of famine and in a time of hardship and in a time of judgment, uh, basically sort of said, hey, uh, life is bad here in Judah and we're going to beat it. We're going to get out of here and we're going to go to Moab. And so Naomi and her husband go to Moab with their two sons. Their two sons have these crazy names like sickness and affliction. <laughs> like their two sons are these, you know, these, these terrible, uh, oh yes, yeah, sickly and crybaby are basically the names of their two sons. They go off uh, to Moab and to sort of escape the judgment of God. And, and ultimately they, they end their lives there. The, those men, Abimelech and the two boys uh, die in Moab. It's sort of an end uh, to that story, an end to sort of trying to escape uh, the, the judgment of God and sort of an escape from the covenant of God. And so Naomi and her daughter Ruth just sort of say, hey, uh, we're going to go back. Um, we're going we're gonna to head back. And, and where we ended the story last week, uh, Ruth, uh, who is uh, Naomi's daughter-in-law, who really had no business uh, sticking uh, with Naomi, uh, converts to Judaism, converts into uh, the family of God. And we see this beautiful uh, sort of poem. That's where we ended last week. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. And Ruth and Naomi begin uh, a trek back uh, to to Judah, back into the covenant land, back hopefully into a place of hope. Uh, The end of the story, of course, is that Ruth will become uh, the great grandmother of King David and ultimately be somebody who is in the uh, lineage of Jesus. And we all, looking back at the story of Ruth, look back to the genealogy at the beginning of the book of Matthew, and we see Ruth's name there, and we know, hey, this is a non-Jewish-born person who is grafted into the family, and we can look back through Christ at her and say, hey, there's a place for us Gentiles in the family of God. So she's just a very uh, sort of providential and beautiful person who's been put in the story. And what we're going to see in this next chapter is sort of how God, uh, in his sovereignty, um, in his providence, sets this whole thing up. And we're going to talk a little bit about that interaction between the sovereignty of God, his providence, his plan, his working through history, and, and looking also at our part and how we do our part, how that whole sort of thing works together. Uh, we used an illustration last week, and every illustration sort of has its flaws and will break down at some point. But we basically used the illustration of a pool table, like a billiard ball table with the 15 balls and the green field and the one cue ball. And at the beginning, God... Uh, breaks 
he strikes the cue ball and sets all the balls in motion in such a way that one by one, according to the strike, according to that first and perfect hit, all of those balls will ultimately drop in the, hall, in the holes. Yet in the middle of all that motion and action, uh, he sort of invites the kids to come and play while the balls are moving. Have any of you played pool uh, with kids around the table? The chaos, and you're like, no, don't crush their, they're gonna crush their fingers, right? And it's mayhem, and the kids are flinging balls all over the place and making a disaster of it. And that's sort of like us. We're invited into the journey of God, into this world that he's created, into this sovereign plan he has, and he says, hey, you have some will, you have some agency, some action here. You can step into this, and you can play the game. And then we have miracles, and God steps into the, the thing, and he's doing trick shots while we're doing craziness, and, and kind of showing off his power and showing off his glory in the midst of it. And somehow in the end of it all, uh, all of the balls drop into the hole one by one, exactly as he planned from the first strike. Uh, we see the sovereignty of God worked out uh, in, in light of our uh, craziness and our chaos and all of the messes that we make. The Hebrew mind doesn't require you to uh, sort of balance those out and say, oh, it's all the sovereignty of God and humans have no agency or, oh, it's all just human will and God just uh, sort of is, is dancing around it somewhere. Uh, the Hebrew mind really sort of allows for you to understand that God is absolutely sovereign, absolutely powerful, absolutely moving according to his will, and yet you are absolutely responsible and absolutely, your actions are absolutely meaningful somehow in his plan as he weaves all those things together. And so in the book of uh, Ruth, we see that providence, God taking natural events and human decision and weaving them together to achieve his ends. And so we want to just sort of look at that and we want to celebrate it and say, hey, uh, how do we navigate the sovereignty of God? How do we navigate our part in it? Um, in the book of Ruth, just a note, there's, there's not any of the awesome miracles that we want to see. We want to see, you know, healings and the Red Sea parting and burning bushes and all of that kind of stuff. We don't see that in the book of Ruth, but which just, is, just makes it possible for us to zoom out for a little bit, uh, especially as charismatic Christians, those of us who, who are coming from that background and looking at it and saying, hey, foundational to understanding the miracles of God is us celebrating uh, the sovereignty of God, celebrating uh, God's providence and his moving. Uh, we look at those small moves that God makes, weaving our lives together as miracles in slow motion, as miracles of, of God sort of doing things, and we celebrate that working of God as much as we celebrate the miracles. Uh, if we're mature, we celebrate him working those things out uh, no matter how he wants to work them out. So the first thing we want to notice as we get into the text in Ruth chapter 1, 20 to 22, is that uh, God's uh, providence is active even when we're in pain. Uh, Ruth 1, 20 to 22. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that the city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? But she said to them, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, which means pleasantness, since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? She's using really strong language here, right? Listen to this, right? Really strong language. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. The Lord has brought me home empty. The Lord has testified against me. The Lord has afflicted me. 
And when we look at her story, um, we look at what's gone on in her life, and we hear that language where he, she ascribes all of this uh, to the Lord. When we look back at the story, do we ascribe all of that necessarily to the Lord? Like her husband uh, sort of took her outside of the covenant land. Uh, she was living in the context of a people of brokenness. Uh, her children uh, were children who were born maybe with some genetic or some uh, inner uh, brokenness or inner sickness so that they didn't live as long as they might have. Uh, but Naomi takes all of this and she somehow says, hey, this is all of the Lord's uh, bitterness against me. And so there's something for us to take just from that for a moment. Uh, it, it's kind of dangerous for us as people to take um, the things that are happening in our lives and to just explain them in a way that's overly simplistic. If we look at Naomi's story, we know what was happening here. We know that there's a host of different things uh, going on. Uh, and, it, and it's really healthy for us to sort of acknowledge the complexity of that journey, acknowledge the complexity of the story the author does as he lays all, all that, that she is summarizing here in chapter 1. So it's wise to take and understand the complexity of the circumstances around us, to not blame God for everything, but also wise, as Naomi did, to say in the middle of it, hey, ultimately God has a place in this too. And we deal with the tension, we deal with the difficulty of, of living in a world that is, uh, for, for our sake, at this moment, kind of like that pool table where the balls are all moving like crazy. God has caused the thing to get going, and people are doing all kinds of crazy things in the midst of it. So there's a comfort for Naomi in the way she sort of says, hey, this is the Lord who has done all of this. And wise to acknowledge the complexity of, of, of human agency in the part of it in part of it. But, but, it's, but it's not wise to just make a blanket statement, this is all my fault, or to say this is all God's fault. We, we recognize, again, the complexity in the story, as the author of the story does. Uh, and the other thing we want to take from that, if you look at verse 19, um, and it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that all the city was excited because of them. The women said, is this Naomi? It's, it's really interesting, in the middle of her darkness, in the middle of her calling herself bitterness, in the middle of that brokenness, and I think that's often the case for us when we're suffering or when we're struggling, when we're dealing with the pain of, uh, of a difficult moment in life, that there are people around us, in this case the, the villagers in Bethlehem, who can see God's sovereignty, who can see uh, God's provision, uh, in, in ways that we can't. It's really wise for us to listen in moments to the voices of people around us who, who are looking at us from outside our pain and saying, hey, Naomi's come back. This person that we grieved going away from us 10 years ago, she went off to Moab. She went off into this incredibly sinful and dark place, and now she's taken some steps back to us. There are sometimes things that God is doing in our lives, moving us toward health, moving us towards uh, uh, a sense of, of his provision for us, and we are still feeling the pain of exile, still feeling the pain of difficulty. It's wise to listen to the encouraging voices around you that can see uh, God's plan and that, that can be excited for you in a moment when you want to call yourself bitterness. Just wise to listen in those moments. And so God's providence uh, can meet us in our pain. 
And, and as we look at Naomi's story and Ruth's story, uh, Naomi's time being called Mara is, is fairly short-lived, right? She, we only have this one place where she calls herself this. She begins to waken up. She begins to see God's hand moving in her life. She begins to see God's provision coming and uh, begins to walk in a little bit more joy. Um, other thought we want to take from the text, and this is from Ruth uh, 22 verses, uh, or verse 1, 22 to 2, verse 2, um, is an idea that God just sort of sometimes just meets us as we're faithful. God's providence meets us as we're faithful to him. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I might find favor. We want to note, uh, you know, that first verse there, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. They came at a providential time. We don't know why they left Moab when they left Moab as they came down from the plains, down the hills, a number of days journey around the bottom side of the Dead Sea and across into where Bethlehem was. But they arrived at a time when it was possible to be provided for. They arrived at a providential time uh, in, in their journey. And when they arrived at this time, when they arrived at this moment, and I think this is something that's a challenge to all of us, uh, when we're looking at our need, when we're looking at the struggle, when we're looking at how we're going to see God's provision, how are we going to see him work out the things in our lives, what Ruth simply did was did what she knew to do. She simply did the work that was necessary. Uh, she wasn't waiting for something to happen. She looked at the circumstances around her. She observed what was going on. And she, uh, through her work, ran into God's provision. It's an amazing sort of uh, moment here uh, in this story. We have uh, a land, a people who have this, been, they've been unfaithful to God. They've sort of abandoned his rules in so many different ways. But one of the rules sort of retained in the culture was something from the Levitical law uh, that enabled them to sort of care for the poor and was just part of a, a justice and a part of a care for the poor that was, was baked into their society. In Leviticus uh, 19, 10, we have this idea of gleaning. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field. It's talking about a farmer. When you go and take the grain off your field, don't take it all off the edges. Don't take it all off the corners of your field. Nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't get the stalks that you missed. Don't pick up the bits that are on the ground that you've, you've forgotten. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the stranger. I am the Lord. And so here we have uh, a scenario where built into the law, provided for God hundreds of years before, a law that would be something that could cause there to be provision for Ruth and Naomi in their poverty. Right? They are the stranger. They are uh, the poor in the midst. And they come in at this time when there's possibility of provision for them and they walk and Ruth simply says, hey, God has provided in this time. God has made this law. This is baked into this new society that I'm adopting. I'm going to just simply do the work, and I'm going to get there, and I'm going to do the thing that I know practically to do. 
Um, and she begins to uh, participate in this gleaning. Uh, this, and, and just to give you an idea, this gleaning practice is something that actually uh, Christians uh, put in force all through Europe uh, through the Middle Ages and up to the 18th century. Uh, there were gleaning laws in places like England where a person would harvest their land, harvest their farm, and there would still be uh, this opportunity for those who were poor. They would ring a bell at eight o'clock in the morning and the poor could come out and they could uh, take anything from the field that was there that the harvester left behind. Seven o'clock, a bell would ring in the church steeple and people would come back to their homes. And so there's this uh, generosity of provision that's existed over the centuries that sort of maybe speaks something to how we, we provide with dignity to other people around us. But, um, when we're looking for that kind of miraculous provision, and that's not to say that uh, there, there aren't stories like this in the scripture where God does this kind of thing in a miraculous way. First uh, Kings 17, the story of the widow of Sidonia who baked a loaf of bread for Elijah, the last with the last for flour and oil, and the oil never ran out, and the flour never ran out. God does, does this miraculous provision, and there are times when that's what we're relying on. But in the case of Ruth, she just gets to work. And she does this thing that really uh, the, the Bible told her to participate in. Very often the practical uh, solution in our needs is the, is the first step for us as we look towards God's, God's stepping in and, and providing. We take a first step. She says, I'm going to go and I'm going to glean, I'm going to work. And maybe uh, this man, Boaz, maybe uh, somebody who is a kinsman redeemer, maybe somebody who is uh, somebody who can help me and, and is required to help me in my society, maybe they'll just see me and maybe they'll participate. And she just takes a step towards that goodness and begins to do the work. Then in Ruth chapter 2, uh, 3 uh, to 5, it says this, Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, Lord be with you. And we'll leave that bit for just a second. But I want us to focus on this idea. She just, of course, she, she goes, she knows the law. She knows that she can glean. Uh, she's hoping she's going to arrive somewhere where somebody will see her and, and show her mercy. And it says she just, and she happened to come. Uh, to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Remember, she's not from there. She doesn't know. Uh, I think we have a picture of the fields uh, here somewhere that we can, Darren, if we could look at that slide. Isn't that some really lovely farmland? <laughs> For you, that's some of the land that they farmed around Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is a big city at this point, and a lot of the farmland is now the suburbs, but uh, that just sort of gives you an idea of what some of the land was. You can see up in the top corner uh, some of the sheep pens on sort of terraced land. And that's where the farmland is, where she would have been going, uh, all divided into sections like that, and she would have been farming on that terraced land. So she just happens to sort of walk up one of those hills, uh, come to one of those stony terraces, and, and steps up there and finds that there's uh, uh, this land that belongs to this guy named Boaz. And that language, uh, she just happened to, is a, is a combination of two Hebrew words. One is wequer, and the other is mikwera. Um, which means accident arrived. She accident arrived. It's really interesting that that was an accident. 
just sort of happened to happen. And we know the author is sort of using this tongue-in-cheek to show us that God's been sort of setting this thing up all along, even though she doesn't know it. Even though she didn't know what she was doing, even though she didn't know where she was going, she just accident arrived in the field. And when you look back at the rabbinic teaching on it, the, the interpretation in the Midrash and, and other books, I, I came across this uh, really cool phrase around it that says, closely observe the accident to see God's hand at work. Closely observe the accident to see God's hand at work. There's so many things that we think are, are, are coincidences, that we think are just happening. And just the Jewish writer just tells us, just take a closer look at that and just see, maybe God's got something going on there. So in her sort of human, everyday faithfulness, she's just doing the stuff that she knows that she needs to do. She's kind of following the Bible and going along, and God meets her with this providential moment. And if you listen to this text, you can hear a Calvinist preacher who will, who will preach on it, a really high view on the sovereignty of God, and they'll uh, preach about the providence that God just ordained all of this and worked it all out. And, and if you can listen to an Anabaptist preacher, which I did preach about it, it'll all be like, look at her choices, how they led her to this amazing moment. And I just want to say, I don't think biblically, and we don't see in the text that it's disambiguated in this case. It's not, it's not God did it all, and it's not she did it all. It's like they did it all. There's a partnership between us and God and how he works these things together. He gets all of the glory, of course, but we have a role. We have something to do, and it's just her everyday mundane faithfulness that brings her to the place where she can receive providential, providential provision from God. God's providence very often runs into our practicality. And so it's a call just to sometimes do this stuff. Uh, in that text uh, that we just looked at on, on Boaz, I just want us to just, just to just pull us out for a little side note. We have occasionally some younger people listening or some single people listening. And I just think there's just a moment here where we see something about Boaz's character revealed to Ruth, and I want to notice it. Um, and it's just this... Uh, Boaz comes into the field, and I don't know, I've worked in sort of construction kind of jobs and things like that, and I've almost never had a boss come into, onto the job site and say, the Lord bless you. <laughs> and, uh, and I've almost never heard the chorus of construction workers say, the Lord bless you. Uh, the, the, the languages about the Lord is often different and not full of blessing. Um, I've heard some, some not great things, but, but what we see in Boaz is just this revelation that in the midst of a dark and a broken culture, uh, we see him as this kind of righteous man who's there. And, and what, I, what I note about Boaz is that whatever, you know, they're distant from the temple, they're in Bethlehem, and we don't know what's happening in terms of temple worship at this time. Uh, in the time of the judges, everything is, is really brutal and really mixed up. The temple hasn't been built, so the tabernacle is on some field somewhere, and we don't really know, you know, what's going on. It's, it's just a really dark time. But somehow this person, Boaz, is, is expressing to the people around him, the people in his field, uh, the people around Bethlehem, that uh, the Lord is uh, blessing you through my life. The Lord is doing something here in this time and in this space. And, and for Ruth, that's a revelation. Uh, like, there's a man who has uh, an eye on the Lord. And, and young people, when you're looking for a spouse, look for someone who isn't uh, just 
talking about the Lord in church, in the temple. Look for that person who's talking about the Lord in their workplace. Look for that person who is the same uh, on the inside and same on the outside. Just a little note. Um, so uh, we meet God's providence um, in simply the practicalities. He surprises us with his goodness. When we get to Ruth 2, 8 and 9, it says, do not go out to glean in another field. He's having a conversation with her now. Uh, he's letting her know that he's provided for her. Uh, do not go out and glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So what he's telling her is, hey, I, I've had some conversation. I've, I've seen you here. I've seen your need. I've seen your situation. And as an administrator over this land, I, I've had a conversation with the ladies. I've had a conversation with the man. I want you to know that you're safe in this place to go about and, and do the work that you're, you're doing. He provides for her. He makes really practical arrangements. So Boaz is also engaged in this practical uh, provision that's resulting in blessing for Ruth. But she asks him this question, why have I found favor in your eyes? Uh, that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner. And Boaz says to her, it has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law. So he knows, he's, he's now heard the story, he's talked to the people who know, he, he understands what, go, what is going on, he's made some practical uh, preparations for her. But then, you, you know, you or I might say, yeah, so I've, I've gone ahead and I've arranged all this for you. I just thought, you know, you're a really cool person. You've done all this amazing stuff. And listen, I want you to know that I'm taking care of you. I got your back. Right? But, but Boaz doesn't seem to have any of that in him. He doesn't seem to have anything in him which is saying, hey, I've got your back. This is the language that he uses. The Lord repay your work. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. And so Boaz, in his generosity, in his benevolence, and in his kindness, is not taking any credit. All of the glory is going to God. All of the glory is going to to, to Almighty. In fact, it seems like Boaz's identity isn't even in this. He's not even sort of saying, I did this because the Lord told me, or I did this for the Lord. He's, he's, he's taken himself completely out of the, the equation and said, the Lord has done this for you. The Lord provide for you. Uh, the Lord of the God of Israel, repay your work and a full reward be given to you by the Lord under whose wings you've come for refuge. It's not under my wings that you've come for refuge here. It's not under my provision. It's not the salary I'm paying you. It's not the, the gift I'm giving you. It's not my benevolence. It's what the Lord has done for you. You've come under his shelter. And Boaz is like fully seeing himself identified with the Lord. The Lord is using him and, and being given glory for what's happening there. So Boaz just gives glory to Yahweh in that moment. And again, we have that incredible backstory of what he says to the workers. There's more that I haven't touched in the text, but he's just generous and does it. And Darren pointed to this in his talk about this partnership that we have with God. And this is what we're sort of striving for. This is what we're looking to be as people. We see it in Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 to 9. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. 
So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants, the one who waters have one purpose, and they'll each be rewarded according to their own labor, for we are co-workers. That's a word phrase that Darren used. We are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. That's something I have to keep in mind as a pastor, right? You're not my sheep. This isn't my church. You you are God's field, not mine. You're, You're his building. It's not mine. Like Paul has this incredible perspective that the work he's doing for the Lord actually has very little to do with him at all. I just do my part, but it's all the Lord's. It all happens under him. It's all for him. It's all for his glory. We do, we do the work in the partnership. We do our part, but he gets all of the glory. He gets all of the praise. Our generosity is for his glory. And, and again, we see Jesus teaching about this in Matthew chapter 6.1. Be careful that you don't do your charitable giving before men to be seen by them, or else you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Uh, Matthew 6, just a couple of verses later, when you give to the poor, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing, so that your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I wonder what the Lord would say about our church and sometimes other churches' Instagram pages sometimes. little cringeworthy when you think about that, isn't it? Right, our generosity is meant to somehow point to him, point to his goodness, point to his glory, and not be something that comes to us. We want people to look at our righteous works, our acts, our deeds, and and like Boaz, not even see us, but see the Lord, to see him and to glorify him. Let me get to Ruth 2.15. Uh, so she rose up to glean. So Boaz has told her, you're going to be safe. It's okay. You've got a good space to work here. I've taken care of you. Uh, the Lord is, is really doing this, not me. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young man saying, let her glean. He's like, okay, wait, I, I've blessed her a little bit, but we need to bless her more. He speaks to his young man, says, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. Like, let her steal the stocks if she wants to. From the, from the already picked grain. I don't think Ruth in her good character will necessarily do that. I don't know whether she did or not. But do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely. Like, oops. Oopsie. Oopsie. Right? Let some of it fall purposely uh, for her. And he gives them some other instructions. instructions. So she took it up and she went into the city. She, she went back. She, she gleaned. She did her day's work. She, again, she put in the labor. She put in the effort. Maybe she could see a trajectory that Boaz was ultimately going to become her husband, or that's what she'd hoped. Who knows? But she just says, this is something that God has provided, and now I'm going to work my butt off and take advantage of it. I'm going to do the work in the moment uh, to follow up and, and, and take advantage of what the Lord has provided. So she took that grain up and she went into the city and to her, and her mother-in-law saw all that she had gleaned. Listen, her mother-in-law, Naomi, saw all that Ruth, she probably came in, I don't know what, with baskets and bundles and, and who knows, in, in the text we actually have some measurements, but she came in with all that she had and Naomi, Naomi says to her, what? Great job, Ruth, fantastic. You're such a great hard worker. It's not in the text. 
What does she say? She says, blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. Naomi's work, God's providence, Boaz's decision, Boaz's faithfulness, again gets pointed back to the praise of the Lord, the glory of God. Blessed is he of the Lord. I'm so thankful for what the Lord has done in this guy, Boaz. Boaz uh, has uh, a purpose, like I'm going to let this grain purposely fall for this woman, but God gets the praise. His, our purpose, God's praise. Our purpose, God's praise. And, and what I love here is this language of how Boaz is woven into and, and included in her praise to the Lord here. Look at this phrase. Blessed be he of the Lord. Blessed be he of the Lord. Like bless Boaz who is of the Lord. Wouldn't that be something if our lives, wouldn't that be something that could, would, would be great to have on your, on your tombstone? I don't want you thinking about your tombstone too much. Wouldn't that be amazing if that was the name that was inscribed there? This, or, or that was the phrase that was even under your name? This person is of the Lord. All that they did was of the Lord. Every good thing that they did, it was of the Lord. Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken. The Lord has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And I just think that we as people have to be living in this place of recognizing that all of our work, all of the things that we do, all of the work of our hands, our labor, our jobs, our benevolence, our kindness, our ministry, all of this stuff has to be something in which we disappear and which God is glorified. We, so that people see not us, but see his providence. Not us, but his goodness. And wouldn't that be something to be able to live with that kind of purity that, that I think maybe we see in Boaz here, where people don't see us, but when, when we walk in the room, they say the Lord is blessing us. Wouldn't that be amazing to be people of that generosity and of that humility to, to live in that way? And then just the last observation from the text I think is, is, is really important for us um, is sometimes only the narrator God sees the whole picture. You know, we know, looking at the story, we mentioned at the beginning that Ruth uh, and Boaz became the grandparents of David, and ultimately uh, in the genealogy of Jesus, and how important their place is there, how important theologically their place is there for us as Gentile believers uh, in the in the story. Um, but they, they simply didn't know any of that. And they simply didn't see any of this blessing coming. They're not reading. They weren't reading the book of Ruth like we get to read the book of Ruth. It's the narrator who knows the story. Some of that is, is invisible to us. That word providence that we've been saying is uh, from the, in the Latin, it's really a combination of two words, pro video, advance seen. Seen in advance. The Lord sees this whole arc. He sees this whole narrative. But the reality is, is that we, we simply don't. We sometimes just live in it moment by moment, making 
the decisions, doing mundane faithfulness. But look at how things lined up from the narrator's perspective. Uh, Ruth and Naomi arrived at the beginning of the barley harvest, the perfect time when God would provide for them. Hundreds of years before, God had set laws in place that would allow them to go into fields that weren't their own and interact with people uh, from multiple social and economic strata. At the only time in the year when, when those sort of interactions in the fields were, were kind of happening, and there she meets uh, in her poverty, she meets this person, Boaz, who would ultimately become her, her husband. Uh, she intentionally kind of asks permission to glean uh, and, and arrives in this place. Um, uh, this all happens in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, which means house of bread. It's ultimately the place where Jesus was born, right? It's a place that, uh, where we see uh, our Savior born as bread of life, bread for the nations, broken for us. We see this incredible story of long connections from the Levitical law all the way through the time of David into the time of Christ and benefits and blessings that we see now. But Ruth and Boaz had no idea of that. Ruth had no idea her name would appear in the genealogy of Christ. And so for us, I think you should, should be encouraged, those little decisions that you make, the, the mundane faithfulness, the, the choice to get up on Sunday morning and come to church, the choice to uh, you know, throw a jerry can in the back of your car because people are driving around and running out of gas all the time because gas prices are what they are. Uh, the, the choice to just do those little things that help and are a blessing. Uh, the choice to get up and go to work in the morning uh, all of those things, the choice to hunt for a job when you're discouraged and you don't want to hunt for a job, all of those little things are things that God sees from his perspective as the narrator and is weaving them together to work his providence, to work his glory, to work his miracles in the world around us. And, and it's only from heaven's perspective and it's only uh, from, from history's perspective, looking from the future back that we're going to be able to see it. But the little things that you do that are full of obedience and full of struggle uh, can be of incredible significance. The narrator gets to see the picture we don't. And we just can't get caught up in needing to see all of the immediate results, and we're not going to do it unless we see the immediate results. We just act and live faithfully and trust the results to God. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovcchurch.ca.